Brand new hour here of America Live. Welcome, everyone. I'm Megan Kelly. Ever heard of a man named Sharif El Jamal? You have now. Roll it. Uh, we're here in New York City. Alex and I came into the city uh, this evening. And uh, we're in Midtown. And we're sitting here at a nice big uh, table with some glass walls and wooden floors and nice plants with uh, someone who was actually the first person that I ever, uh, the first place I ever taught, first person who gave me my first job as a uh, uh, as a teacher uh, of Dean and religious sciences, that is Sharif Al Gabb. Welcome to the program. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Alaikum salam warahmatullahi. Uh, so, well, it is absolutely an honor and uh, a privilege to be on your podcast this evening. Uh, subhanallah, Sheikh Shadi. It is. Uh, 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 I'm. I'm just so honored. I'm so honored. I. I uh, uh, I'm so happy and honored to be well, here. Well, it's an honor for us and it's a pleasure to be here. So the first uh, way that I actually came to know Sharif is that after a year uh, working full-time at Yale, it took me three years to get the full-time spot. I was doing dog days in uh, basements and after hours, uh, tutorials and uh, uh, recitations, what they call them in the Arabic department. So I did that for three years, toiling and laboring, and finally got the full-time spot, which was like getting a spot in a... It's like getting a citizenship when you get that, <laughs> the amount of perks that come along with it. So it's actually more valuable probably than citizenship of some countries, the perks that you get out of it. But after a year, I realized there's a glass ceiling. So I abruptly, at the end of the year, I just said, forget this, I'm not going back. Uh, and my whole family thought I was crazy. But I said, well, I'm not going back. And... I had to come up with an alternative real quick. So when you leave something like Yale, you have to come up with an alternative real fast. So all I did that night was looked at who was the tri-state area driving distance from New Haven, Connecticut, uh, you know, has any money. And you at that time kept coming up in the media. And me and uh, my wife were actually fan clubs of this whole story, right? Of how this Egyptian guy is at the forefront of this Park 51 and she's the, she's the first one to read me the story and then she was laughing he's, she's like this guy's complete Egyptian he's so stubborn he, <laughs> he, he won't budge and every time they attack him he gets even more stubborn he's a real Egyptian so uh, which you're half Egyptian right so it, eventually that uh, search led me to my CV being on the desk of your partner Noor who is no longer here, he's in Saudi now. But uh, uh, eventually that led one thing to the other and I ended up uh, uh, giving the khutbah that one day on the spot, which was amazing because my dad was here having heart surgery. SubhanAllah. When Noor, Subhanallah. Noor called me on my cell phone or sent an email or something and he said, could you come for the khutbah? It was literally 30 minutes before Jummah. SubhanAllah. And I happened to be in Manhattan because my dad was having heart surgery at Presbyterian. Right? So everything is from Allah's will. Uh, went down there a lot of people thought it was crazy to take the job because it was so controversial at the time if you remember Park uh, Park 51 or really Ground Zero Mosque was the idea but anyway let's uh, so that's how I know Sharif uh, and that was nine years almost a decade ago right yeah maybe a less, little less than a decade ago a little less than a decade so let's go back to you so you're born in Alexandria no born in Brooklyn born in Brooklyn and your dad is a banker Dad is a banker. And he was working here in New York. 
was working in New York. Uh, I never knew you were born in Brooklyn. I thought you were born in Egypt. No, no. And then you born came in Brooklyn. Okay, born, we were born in, Brooklyn. in Bay Ridge. No, Park Slope. Okay, mashallah. Methodist Hospital. Okay. So fun fact about me, uh, my father-in-law was also born in Methodist Hospital on the same day that I was born, on December 23rd, wow. 20 years apart. That's crazy. Mashallah. Fun fact. That's crazy. That's crazy. Your father-in-law, 20 years apart? 20 years apart. Wow. He's 20 years older than me. So now you, you're born in Brooklyn. Tell us exactly, your main thing is real estate. Uh, if I haven't introduced Sadiq properly, he's a real estate uh, uh, mogul, I guess. If you made this book that's sitting in front of us here, this real estate book called The Real Deal, I guess we could say you're a bona fide mogul. Is that is that think, all right? I think or a mogul has to have white hair. What, how does it work? The subtitle of the book is The Titans of New York Real Estate. The Titans of New York Real Estate. So you're a real a, a big a big shot in the the big leagues of real estate in the world. Mashallah. Uh, take us from basically. Well, first of all, I'm 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 absolutely nobody. I'm just uh, just. A human being trying to figure out how to make it happen. Well, Sharif, I'm tell the tell the listeners one of the big things about him is that uh, he, even though he's a big shot in a world of of jerks and dogs and and killers, he is very humble with the ulama, and he always uh, makes it a uh, makes it clear, makes it a point to be humble and serviceable to the ulama and to the salihin and to the Muslims. So that's a huge thing coming from someone who has to live in a world of dogs, killers, and gangsters, and and, and conniving, <laughs> greedy, power-hungry. Well, that's the truth of it, right? Real estate, the earth, there's not so much earth, right? The land is not so much. So in order to have some of that land, you got to fight. So that's why they become like that, right? So And in New York City... Yeah, that, yeah, the land is almost non-existent. It's almost non-existent. There, there's no land in New York. There's no land. Yeah, so in order, no so you're fighting for a finite. Remember, we talked earlier about why is it that real estate developers are such gangsters and killers, and why it's the hardest. You said it's the toughest business to get into. Well, the commonsensical or philosophical is that you're fighting over something very finite, right? Hundred percent. So so rare. Hundred percent. Right. Hundred percent. So I was just shown a book that had the top real estate dons. Right in the, in the city, how many top thirty that book covers? The top thirty every year or top fifty? So this is basically like the the, the Emmys or something or the All Star team of real estate it's people. The dream team. Okay, and and you're actually in the book. Number two in the book was Donald Trump before he became president. Yes. So I asked you. I said, "All right, he may you you ever dealt with this guy? You dealt with him twice. You said I dealt with him twice. All right, tell me about him. I'm interested. So the 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 time that I dealt with him physically. Was I met him at the U.S. Open? Okay. And when I met him at the U.S. Open, I have this uh, habit of taking my daughters, who both play tennis, Sarah and Jenna, to the Open, and uh, we were seated close to him. And obviously, he had he had better seats. He had his security. He had his security. Uh, his, he had his bodyguard with him. I went up and I said hello to him, and and he looked at me, and he remembered me right away. Uh, and he looks at me and he goes, uh, you know, how you doing? And uh, some pleasantries and formalities. But then he really looked at me and he looked at my daughters and he said, your father's a winner. And it was a short interaction. <laughs> Interesting. But he made, uh, he made a statement. But really the first time that he came into my life was uh, during uh, one of the, uh, the, the, the most... Uh, interesting times of my life when uh, 
when uh, a simple project that I had commenced had garnered the attention of the world for an extended duration of time. And during that time, you know, Donald Trump is, is one of the masters of publicity, of media, of positioning, of branding. Uh, and yes, there are many strokes of genius that, that he emits, and that's how God created him. Whether he's good, whether he's bad, whether he's evil, or, or whatever he is, God has created him. Or yes, there are strokes of genius that come out of him. And he is, I believe, what we would call min al-mansurin. He is somebody who is always, always mansur, okay? Now that doesn't mean he's good or he's bad. It's just, it's a quality that I believe he has been given, okay? Now he could be min al-mansurin, but he's extremely evil. Right and the decisions and the things that he does are evil. So Mansur just he he wins in the world. They sense he's he's a winner. God okay. has created him as a winner. He is uh, he's unstoppable. When you look and when you think that he's out, he not only is he not out, but he's emerged in a stronger uh, position. And uh, we don't know what he does in his off time or. Uh, is he happy? Is he unhappy? But but he is minil mansurin, and and there is this this beautiful scholar that I am so honored to be sitting with this evening, and and one of my introductions into uh, into my practice that you know that I that I polish myself with every day is reciting the word of the Latif. Critical, and uh, it's and I've had so so many incredible openings from the, the recitation of Al-Wird al-Latif. And, and part of the word is asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the protection of the Mansurin, mm. right? There is a part of that word where you ask Allah to protect you for certain people. Mm. And he's one of the Mansurin. But when he first came into my life, he uh, decided to jump to, to, to jump on the bandwagon of everybody else that was uh, giving their opinion about you know whether we should do it. Is this right? Is this not right? And he ended up coming up and giving me an offer in writing to buy the buildings from us. So okay? to give people a background, the building you're talking about is when you decided to make a masjid or a community center, we really just started up as a masjid, right? Yeah. And the, the, the piece of property that you found was like three blocks from World Trade Center, from Ground Zero. So they started calling it the Ground Zero Mosque. That's what you're talking about. Exactly. And it was a big hullabaloo that was started by Pamela Geller, who's like disappeared, if you noticed, right? She's, uh, may Allah give her hidayah. May Allah, may well, that, Allah give her That's hidayah. a positive spin on it. That's a good answer. But he jumped on that and he said, I'll buy it from you, which is probably a publicity. Just to, oh, just was, to get it part was of 100% of publicity. Yeah. So he has to get part of the pie. Part. And so he sent us a formal offer. And when he sent us the formal offer, he sent it to, uh, you know, I think he sent it to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal at the same time. <laughs> and that uh, in his offer, he said, listen, you know, uh, I want to buy the building from you. I want to give you 25% more than what you paid for it. And in the event that you accept my offer, you have to agree that you will not build your mosque within a specific radius of the World Trade Center. Okay. So 
I immediately, um, you know, was was obviously uh, reacting. I was reacting to so many different things that were happening so quickly, and and uh, uh, and we weren't prepared uh, for what was coming at us. And what I ended up doing is I picked up the phone and and I called him and and I got him on the phone. And obviously, there was a certain level of respect for who Donald Trump is, right? In our business, he's uh, you know he's one of the most accomplished. Um, real estate players, whether you like him or don't like him, he has accomplished, uh, you know, tremendous success in his career, in his business career. Whether he did it right or whether he did it wrong, he's accomplished it, right? And um, so there was obviously a level of humility when I picked up the phone and I called him and, and, and I said, you know, immediately, Mr. Trump, thank you for the offer that you sent me. But I have a couple of, you know, I have a couple of questions and, and, and things that I want to discuss with you because obviously, uh, part of doing business is is never is never not entertaining something or never not letting something flush out. You always want to drill a little deeper. You want to be curious. You want to uh, you want to investigate things when they come on your door. And so, part of what uh, um, what I did immediately is I said, you know, first, you know, thank you for sending the offer. And, um, you know, why only 25%? I said the building, and this was, by the way, one of the best real estate deals that I've ever done in my career. Okay. Uh, the building was appraised for 10 times what I had bought it for sure. by CBRE. So I immediately said to him and CBRE is one of the most, uh, uh, uh recognized, uh, appraisal firms in the world, right? They're probably top three uh, in our business globally, recognized globally as one of the top three, and they appraised the building for almost 10 times what we had paid for it. And so uh, his first remark was one of what was one of anger and, and puzzlement. Why did you only pay that much for it if it was worth 10 times what this appraisal from CBRE? And I immediately said to him, I said, what difference does it make? How many good deals have you done in your life? You know, we were talking about deals a few minutes ago. What makes a good deal, right? Yeah. And so obviously a good deal, the first part of making a good deal is on the acquisition, right? When you acquire something, you have to have bought it right in order for it to be a good deal. That's the first criteria of a good deal is on the acquisition. And so... He, you know, he started clamming down, and now he was he was angry. How did you get this for for this value? And it's being a, you know, said here. And very candidly, at that moment in time, there wasn't a price that you could have given me to sell that real estate. Yeah. If you had come up to me and offered me a hundred million dollars, I don't think I would have sold the real estate. And only Allah knows what my intention was. And, you know, looking back now, I don't know. Maybe I should have sold it for a hundred million dollars. But well, it would have looked like you gave up because you can't put a price tag on winning and losing battles, and that's a publicity battle that you know everyone sees that you won, right? So you can't buy those types of wins and losses. That's why when you say I can't put a price tag on it, it's not the building. It, the building symbolizes a struggle and a fight. Like in this and and in this field, if you look like you're someone who 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 gives up easily, and just capitulates, right? You're not going to get so far. Hundred percent. Yeah. So, 
the conversation would just end it at yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to sell this or oh no 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 so so th- that was the first part of the conversation but then I and then and then I asked him a question after I told him what the valuation by CBRE was I said you know I, I, Mr Trump I, I want to ask you a question I said to him I said are you ethnically an American Indian or are you <laughs> the son of immigrants <laughs> like I am the son of immigrants yeah. I said, did your parents come from Scotland or Ireland or, yeah. you know, did somebody come from somewhere or are you an American Indian? And he got all flustered <laughs> at this point because he didn't see this one coming, yeah. right? He didn't see this one coming. I said to him, your second part of your proposal to me has asked me to essentially establish the first Muslim-free zone in the United States of America, if I accept your offer right now, you're saying to me that you want me to be responsible for subjecting my children to carry a heavier backpack, okay, every day that they go to school, that their father agreed to establish a a Muslim-free zone, okay? Are you... An American Indian, Mr. Trump. <laughs> At this point, <laughs> he started stuttering. Okay? He literally started stuttering on the phone. Oh and I said, at the end of it, I said to him, I said, Mr. Trump, before you know, before we end, I know that you just signed a Gucci lease on Fifth Avenue. And he had just done this monster lease where he had leased in the base of the building that he lives on on Fifth Avenue and 56th Street. He did, a, he did a monster deal with Gucci. I said to him, Mr. Trump, how much do you want for that lease? Because I'll pay you cash and I won't waste your time. <laughs> he at that point hung up the phone on me. Are you kidding? I wish you had uh, recorded that. He at that point hung up the phone at me and he literally went out and started going on the morning talk shows. And this is all you could, you could Google this, and yeah. you could YouTube this, okay? Because it's still all there. Give us a little history, what you wanted to do and where it is now. Well, there's tremendous bedlam and tremendous angst going on downtown Manhattan. I mean, you see people, thousands and thousands of people, and they're literally close to rioting. It's really a terrible thing that's happening. And I'm a very big believer in freedom of religion, and I think people should have the right to build mosques or temples or churches or whatever they want to build. But this is in the shadow of the World Trade Center. It's one block from the World Trade Center, and people are really visibly shaken by it. And I read an article about three or four days ago where the developer's bragging about what a great deal he made. This is the developer, and he's saying what an unbelievable deal, etc., etc., and that it's worth $18 million or $20 million, and he paid $4.8 million. So I said, you know, this sounds more like a real estate transaction, and with all this trouble, maybe what I'll do is call up, offer him a nice profit, buy it, I don't even want it. I don't even like the location. It's not a great location as far as I'm concerned. So I called him, and he started bragging to me about what a great deal he made. I said, well, why don't you sell it? I'll give you your money back. I'll give you a small-time developer. I'll give you your money back. I'll give you a 25% increase. I'll pay your costs. I'll pay everything, and we'll end this whole fiasco. And he said, no, 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 I wouldn't do that. This is worth 18 or $20 million. I said, well, are the people that sold it stupid? Because I know the people that sold it, and they're not stupid. I said, you mean the real estate market in less than a year is four or five times what you paid? Well, they didn't know what they were doing. Oh, that's really, that's great. 
So the bottom line is, I, I view it more as a real estate transaction for this guy than a mosque, frankly. So where does it and, stand right now? Well, it they're, stands they're going that he, thinks, it, huh? he at least tells me that he thinks it's worth much more than he paid for it. I don't believe it is worth much more than he paid for it. I offered him a 25% profit, and in order to end this, not in order to buy this piece of real estate, which I need like a hole in the head, I offered him a 25% profit. Right. I guess he turned it down. But something should be done, because I'll tell you what, it's only going to get worse. He literally started going on the morning talk shows, and as he was going on the morning talk shows, he literally started calling me a sleazy developer that was greedy, and that he made me a fair offer, and that I refused to take it, because he literally, you know, first of all, it bothered me one because this was somebody that I looked up to in my career, right? Mm -hmm. um, I have a history of, uh, you know, early in my career, I met his son, okay? And I had a relationship with his oldest son, Don Jr., who now has become uh, a major pundit uh, and, and face of the Republican National Party. He right. has become this conservative voice where he is, you know, regularly showcased on all media outlets, and he's essentially... Uh, reinvented his personality into, uh, you know, uh, uh, into a sidekick for his father in a way. Him, you know, and it's brilliant. Listen, I've I've got to, I've got to pay, you know, absolute uh, credence to the way that he raised his children, and and uh, you know, all of them are are almost married. I know that his uh, uh, Tiffany's getting engaged this weekend at Mar-a-Lago. I, I know. Uh, uh, you know, all the kids are married. They're all they all have kids. He's done an incredible job raising his kids. You know, in 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 a certain aspect. And and when I met Don Jr., I met Don Jr. Uh, early in my career. Okay, and uh, I I was probably in the beginning of my career. And Don and there was this Persian uh, investor. And when I started my career in the real estate business, I was a broker. And I didn't control, uh, you know, being a broker, you had to be careful who you shared information with. Because if you gave out the information, it was easy for you to get circumvented and for somebody to go around your back and end up doing a deal. And then, you know, because brokers at the end of the day, you know, they're, they're like transactional parasites, right? Yeah. They're part of the transaction. They, they, they pick up some crumbs, but, uh, but you, could get, you could chew them away if you want to, right? Yeah. So there was this Persian guy, and he didn't give me, obviously, what's called an exclusive listing in our, in our business. He gave me a listing. He gave me an opportunity. and said, if you have somebody, bring him, bring him by. And somebody said, oh, I, I know Don Jr. I know Donald Trump's kid. And I was like, great, bring him. And so when I first met him, the building was literally on Madison and 27th Street. Okay. And when I first met him, um, I didn't tell him where the building was. And uh, I remember in the beginning of my career, I was very careful how I shared information with people. So I had this staple clipboard and I had a confidentiality agreement, okay? And I told him to meet me on a corner. And uh, I didn't tell him where the building was. I said, we're gonna meet on this, on the northeast corner of 27th and Madison. He was there. And then he goes, hi, we introduce one another. And he says, where's the building? I go, well, first of all, you have to sign my confidentiality agreement. Okay. And he looks at me. And he goes, don't you know who I am? Okay. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, I don't care who you are. Sign the confidentiality agreement or there's, I'm not showing you anything. Okay. Yeah. And so he signed the confidentiality agreement. And that was my introduction into meeting Don Jr., who I built a, a friendship with. 
uh, and um, uh, and also a little look into how the Trump Organization does their business, right? And it was also a, a, a tremendous learning experience for me in my career during those interactions that we had. But when his dad started going and pounding me essentially every day for you know multiple times during the day and really getting a lot of uh, steam from that offer that he gave me, uh, I called up Don and I said, Don, I go, what the hell is your father doing? Okay, you've, no you've known me for 10 years, okay? Mm -hmm. Why is he trashing me on the news every day, right? And the kid, and, and Don apologized to me. He goes, yeah. listen, I'm sorry. He sometimes goes on tangents, okay? And, but I'm going to talk to him, okay? I'm going to tell him that I know you and, and to, to kind of lay off you. Yeah. So the following day, and the interview's out there because it's, it's still recorded. The following day, he goes on one of the talk shows, and he says nice things about me. <laughs> so he literally flipped the switch, like literally the next day. And then Don called me and said, "Listen, he's he's not going to talk negative about you anymore." And and so that was that was my uh, experience with Don, yeah. with our president. <laughs> <laughs> this is literally how he still behaves. Yeah. So how, tell us exactly what exactly got you into this field from being a kid from Brooklyn, which you jumped around to. You lived in Africa. You lived in Alexandria. How exactly did you get into real estate? Simply, uh, you know, through the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, through, through, through his guidance and, and through, through my destiny. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, was, I was lost. I was lost and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And... Uh, I was in my uh, I was in my early twenties, uh, and I realized that I was stuck in a cycle that I needed to get out of. And being stuck in that cycle, uh, I knew that I had certain gifts that had been bestowed upon me as a human being, and I just didn't know how to fully unlock those gifts. And one day, I was with a friend of mine uh, who was uh, quite wealthy, and he wrote a check out to somebody for $30,000. And I looked at him and I said, what did that person do for you to get that check of $30,000? And he said, oh, he's a broker. He just leased out a couple of my lofts in Tribeca. And... I said, no way, you just gave him $30,000 and he just leased some lofts for you? Uh, introduce me to him, I, I wanna meet this guy. And uh, this guy was, uh, uh, was uh, um, uh, where I, ho I hope is, I hope he's still alive, his name is Dove Popak, and he was from uh, a real estate dynasty in Crown Heights, the Popak family, they're one of the largest multifamily owners of, uh, of uh, uh, multifamily residential buildings in Crown Heights that they own. And uh, uh, Dove was, uh, went out on his own and started a brokerage business. And, and I convinced him <clears throat> almost immediately to take me on as a partner. Uh, I, I realized that I didn't want to work for somebody. And uh, when I got into real estate, since I've been in this business, I've never worked for anyone. I've been very, very blessed that uh, I've been able to uh, maintain my own destiny and, and uh, 
you know, uh, I never worked for anyone. I never uh, um, had to tie, you know, I, I, I learn all the time, but uh, ended up working with Dove Popak and, and started this business with him and kind of picked it up immediately. Uh, now, a broker is someone who just knows a bunch of people on both ends of the deal. Right, a broker is someone who just knows buyers and sellers. Right, that's your middleman between the two. You're you're a, you're a middleman, yes, but a broker, you know, there, it's it's also an art, right? <clears throat> There's a lot of qualities that go into being a broker, and obviously, when I got started in the business, the business and and our world was very different. We didn't have computers. We didn't really have real cell phones yet. We had we had cell phone cell phones were just getting started mm-hmm. at a different level. Uh, the technology, the sharing of information that exists today did not exist back then. And so when I got started, uh, you know, uh, the way that I would go and find my listings in the beginning was I essentially would canvas the classified sections of the New York Times and of the Wall Street Journal. I would classify to find listings. And I would scout buildings for sale and what have you. And so the start of my career in real estate was essentially being, being a broker. And through that journey, I started out by renting apartments. <clears throat> my focus was renting apartments. And I knew that I wanted to do something bigger. I knew that I wanted to figure out how to get to the next level of the real estate business. And so the next thing that I did was I started selling buildings. I literally, within eight months of getting into the business, of getting into the real estate business, I sold my first building for $10 million. And uh, when I sold that first building is when I made my first real check. Um, I made a huge commission on that deal. I made close to $600,000 as my first commission on that deal. And that was about a year of getting into the business. Um, what's interesting though, when during that first year, there, there's this really uh, uh, you know, important experience. And I think that one of the things and one of the uh, characteristics that I've been able to uh, continuously evolve and develop on is uh, that characteristic of, of being curious. And I feel that no matter what you do in life, you have to maintain that curiosity within yourself. And so in the beginning, as you're getting started and you're competing against all these brand name brokerage houses and, uh, you know, what's your edge? What, what gives you that what gives you that edge over others where people want to give you their listing or want to give you their business, right? Because there's a certain trust. It's not simple. It's not a simple business. Um, every aspect of real estate is difficult and you know, thousands of people try to get into the business even on the, uh, on the simplest scale of being a broker, okay? Because it's very meritocratic. So you don't have to have a skill set, right? You don't have to have an education. I'm a college dropout. Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. So again, it's, it's based on what you put into it is what it's gonna give you, right? And so when I started in the business immediately, I opened up my eyes and, and one, of the things that, uh, that one of the things that I did is um, I started cutting a lot of the sandbags that existed in my life that were holding me back from achieving my potential as a human being. Like? 
Ah, I can't get into those details. No, I thought you were talking about something like uh, not believing in myself, those types no, of no, 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 things. no, no. I think it was it was um, escape, running away from your from your potential. I am convinced, one hundred percent, that we as human beings are either responsible for our success, or we are responsible for our lack of success in the fields and the and and the professions that we we choose to. Uh, uh, partaken and you know one of these one of the the, the instances in real estate and, and obviously uh, the, the first thing this curiosity that I've been you know been gifted with one of one of the most important qualities that I believe that every human being must maintain throughout their life is maintaining this curiosity is that I remember one day I was walking by a building and I saw this four lease by owner sign Okay, and I called the number and I got a recorded message saying, we have open houses Monday through Thursday from five to seven, please come, okay? So I came because part of, the, part of being a broker is that you need to find a listing, right? You need to find a listing that you could then go and find customers to show them that listing. So I went to this open, open house from five to seven and I went in and I said, who's the broker here? And there was no broker and I just saw a super walking around and opening door, apartment doors in a building and just walking around and people are all walking around kind of doing their own thing. And they don't have a seller? There was no broker. There was no representative. Okay. Oh, this is what you said, for and, sale by owner. Yeah. yeah uh, uh, for, for No, no, no. It, it was by a broker. It was an invitation by the broker, but the broker never showed up. Oh, okay. 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 And I ended up walking in and the super, uh, I then went up to the super and I, and I said to the super, please give me your number. Okay. Mm-hmm. The next morning at around seven o'clock in the morning, I called him up in a gruff voice. And I said to him, uh, you know, I said, uh, are you the super of this and this and that? And he goes, yes, I'm the super. And I go, make me, vac- make me copies of all the keys for all the vacant apartments right now. I'm gonna meet you at 8.30. And he goes, who are you? I said, well, I didn't even give him a chance to, to, to question my authority on the phone call. Within an hour, I end up meeting the super and he hands me this brown paper bag, okay, <laughs> with about 40 keys labeled for all these buildings. Not only for the building, and I, I remember this, it's kind of crazy, 372 East 10th Street, but he gave me keys for two buildings on 25th Street. He gave me keys for three buildings on East on West 11th Street on the water, on the, on the West Side Highway. And he gave me all these keys and he showed them to me. And I said, thank you. And I said, make sure that you clean the buildings this morning. And the guy ran away all nervous, okay? <laughs> Now I figured out the first part of the puzzle. My curiosity, okay, uh, and my desire and my persistence gave me this bag of keys of about 40 keys. And so now I realized one of the things about uh, brokerage is customer service, right? Uh, You have to be available when the customer wants to be available, Mm -hmm. not through the five to seven, Mm -hmm. come in and walk around and, and look at the apartments, right? So... Uh, I started leasing up these apartments, okay? And this woman that uh, uh, was the broker was a little surprised because I would like call her every two weeks and say, you know what, I have a customer that wants to lease an apartment. We're gonna, can you prepare the lease? We're gonna sign in and what She's the broker on the- She was the broker- b- Owner side. On the owner side, yeah. okay? And she was a little confused how I continued to lease these apartments so quickly, okay? I probably ended up within a span of three months 
doing 20 plus deals in the in this guy's buildings okay and finally at like the last lease like i knew this guy's portfolio uh she ends up looking at me and she was just frustrated she said you know what go to the owner of the building and have him sign the lease okay <laughs> which by the way you never do if you're a broker you she never cut want herself to. out she kind of cut herself out by herself why but uh, uh, i don't know okay part of my destiny right yeah and uh uh so i re i remember going up to the owner his name i don't know where he is in this world but his name was my it, it was michael waldman and i remember <laughs> meeting michael waldman in one of his penthouses and and i and i walk in and, and he goes he goes are you the guy leasing all the apartments <laughs> and i go yeah and he goes how are you doing it well like you filled up the whole building <laughs> you filled up all the buildings. How did you do it? And, and so I told him the story. I said, you know, about three months ago, I called your super <laughs> and I told him to make me copies of all the keys. So that way you don't have to and wait I, for the Yeah, other I didn't want to wait for the five to seven o'clock yeah. appointment when they open up. <laughs> so he started laughing and he looks at me and he, and he says, you want to get coffee tomorrow morning? You want to grab a cup of coffee with me in the morning? I go, absolutely. Uh, I go, where? And he goes, well, I like to have coffee at six o'clock in the morning. Uh, join me, you know, here at this cafe in, in the West Village and we'll have a cup of coffee and we'll chat then, but thank you and signed off. So the other thing that obviously I started learning as, as I got further into business is the people that succeed in business are the ones that wake up early, right? And, you know, it's also a sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Allahumma salli wa sallam alayka habibi rasulullah, uh, that the ones that wake up early are usually the ones that win the day. That's when your that's when your uh, risk is defined for you. That's when your pro, your provisions are being given to you in that early hour of the day. And it, I was blessed that I kind of learned that in the beginning. So one of the things, again, going back to my curiosity and and you know the minute that I got into this business, I I knew I was going to be successful and and I knew that. I didn't know where it was going to take me and where I where I was going to end up, you know, when I started in this business. And uh, I, I I remember that I went to a Barnes and Noble section the night before the meeting, and I went to the real estate section of Barnes and Noble in, in Union Square, and I sat there in that library till they closed, and I picked up books on managing buildings and on building maintenance and what have you, and because I figured that. They're, they're, I got to do something with this guy at, seven, at six o'clock in the morning. What am I going to do? Just be yeah. unprepared, right? Which is another thing about business is that you need to be prepared before, before you go and sit and meet with anybody. Uh, and so I ended up, um, uh, you know, sitting down with him and, you know, we, we talked for a little bit. And then I, and I looked at him. I said, Michael, who's managing your buildings for you? And he goes, and the broker's name, her name is Carol Quatrone. He goes, Carol is. She's managing the buildings. I say, Michael. I just leased up your whole portfolio. <laughs> Give me the buildings to manage, okay? Yeah. And I promise you, I will reduce your operating expenses. I will increase the net income that goes into your into your pocket. I will find efficiencies in your whole portfolio. By the way, this was from not sleeping the night before and just figuring mm -hmm. out you know, some terminology that I knew nothing about. <laughs> I knew absolutely nothing about it. You know, talk about the phrase, fake it until you make yeah. it, right? Fake it until you make it, but just do, right? Just do and don't be afraid and believe in yourself. If you believe in yourself, uh, magic happens and, and the things that you, that, that you haven't even dreamed about potentially can happen in your life. So I got the gig. 
the guy fired Carol Quattrone. Carol oh yes. And here, within about, it took a little bit of a time to get the transition going, but within a span of a month, he gave me 400 apartments to manage. Wow. Now, this is in my first year in the real estate business. And he gave me control of his bank accounts, close to $2 million, okay? And here I am now. I started by renting apartments. I sold a building. I sold my first building. And now, as I'm almost celebrating my one-year anniversary in the business, I just got a portfolio of buildings to manage. So the next year of my business in the real estate business, I became a manager. I became a building manager for a third-party owner, okay? And really, I learned one thing that doing that, you're essentially a glorified superintendent, mm-hmm. okay? And I realized that you know, I should just stick to selling the buildings because the commissions are so much greater than just managing them. And managing them is, a, is like an hourly salary or what? No, you get a percentage of the rev, a percentage okay. based on the income that you collect on a on a, a annual you. basis. Okay. So if you're collecting, you know, two million dollars, you try to get six percent of that. Okay. You know, and, and that's what you get paid for yourself. So it works out to like ten thousand dollars a month. It's not. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's it's uh, for for a business that. You know, it can be extremely lucrative. This is a business where you could win lotto legitimately, regularly, okay? Um, uh, It wasn't enticing, but it was extremely important for my development, Hmm. um, for my holistic development in the business. I didn't know, obviously, what was ahead, what was, you know, ahead in my future. And I'm, you know, I've been in the business now close to 20 years. Um, So this was in the beginning of my career in the beginning of my real estate career. But what's interesting and, and, and why I'm going to focus on this story is because after managing these buildings for about a year, okay, I ended up achieving what I had set out to do. I established efficiencies in his, in his portfolio. I reduced expenses that he had. And one day we were sitting in a taxi together, okay? And he, you know, he enjoyed my company. I enjoyed him. It was, it was an interesting... Uh, relationship and he puts his arm around me okay we're sitting in a cab and he puts his arm around me and he says Sharif us Jews need to stick together (laughs) and fantastic oh my gosh my face goes beet red (laughs) oh my gosh I don't even know what to say I've never been in a situation like that before okay and I didn't say anything. I didn't know what to say. And I walked away from that experience. And for about two weeks, I couldn't sleep at night. I didn't identify who I was, okay? Sharif Muhammad al-Yamal, he thought I was Jewish. Oh, is okay? he ignorant or what? He thought I was Jewish, okay? From the Medinan tribes. I mean, I mean... <laughs> And so then... But what do you think? You're an Arab Jew, a Persian Jew? Or no, what? he just thought I was Jewish. Is, is your, your mom is, is, po- is Polish. My mom is Polish. So She's Christian. She was she, Christian. She was Christian. So finally, after two weeks, I'm like, I got to go say something to this guy. I can't, you know, this guy literally thinks I'm Jewish. So I remember I walk up to him and I go, Michael, I, I got to talk to you. Is he an old man, by the way? No, he was, he's probably my age today, you know. The when you were okay, so uh, he's a young guy. He, he was, was still, a young guy. He was still climbing the ladder too. He he inherited the portfolio. Okay, from, so he was part of that. You know, uh, uh, second generation. He was a second generation. We, we we have a word for it, but I'm not going to use it on your podcast. What is it? I'm not going to use it on your podcast. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I have to be appropriate. Okay. Um, 
And so, uh, you know, he was a second generation um, uh, real estate owner. So I went up to him and I said to him, uh, Michael, I'm Muslim. And his face went beet red. <laughs> okay. And the next day he fired me. Wow. He fired me and he took the whole portfolio back. And it was one of the best things that happened to me, obviously, because I'm not a quitter. Okay. Mm-hmm. Part of being in business and, and, and doing what we do is you can't quit. Okay. So, um, well, the manager gig in the first place was just a learning. You know, you're not going to be a manager forever. Right. But again, I wasn't going to quit. Like I didn't see myself if I didn't get fired. Yeah. Okay. I probably, Would've who knows? Going. I might've kept going for a long time managing these guys. You know, again, it was, it wasn't, uh, 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 who knows where my career would have taken or what have you, but he ended up firing me. Yeah. And I remember my office at the time was on Prince Street in Soho, okay? It was on, uh, it was on Prince Street. My office was at 159 Prince Street and my apartment was at 157 Prince Street. Look at the convenience. Wow. So I had a storefront on Prince Street between West Broadway and Thompson and I lived right next door. And I remember after he fired me, I did something, obviously I was, uh, um, uh, I was raised as a Muslim, but I wasn't a practicing Muslim, okay? I was more a Muslim by name mm-hmm. up until this point in my life. When I got into real estate, I started cutting sandbags, really uh, you know, inappropriate things that I was doing as a human being, okay? Uh, and I call those, you know, uh, uh, time you know I call we'll call those the BC years of my life okay but at that particular moment I got nervous and I realized that I was in business and I didn't know what was going on and I realized that I need to turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I remember I went to my apartment and I did my ablutions I did my wudu and I prayed two rakahs and I haven't done that in a long time and I asked Allah to guide me with what I should be doing. And that's when I started going to Salat al-Jummah, okay? And that was also right around, uh, that was also right around when 9-11 had happened, okay? It was literally like a, a convergence of events was happening right around that time. So at that time, you weren't really an owner of properties, you were more of no. a manager of properties. I was a, a I was broker. a broker. Okay. I was a broker, and uh, uh, and my ownership <clears throat> of properties uh, did not start until two thousand and five. Okay, so I have a question. Actually, as a broker, where would you get your customers? Like, how, like, what's the technique in in Manhattan to get your customers? I have a great story for you. You know, I again, I, I once was was walking down Broadway walking down Broadway in, in, in Soho. And what I would do in the beginning of the business is that I would cut out, uh, uh, you know, how people would follow baseball cards or football cards or what have you. I started cutting clippings of people in my business, okay? So that if I ever saw them on the street, I would recognize them immediately. That's very smart. Okay. Uh-huh. And I started almost having a playbook. I would voraciously digest information at the end of the day on my business 
and I would study extensively who the players are, what the transactions are, what the submarkets are. I was consuming anything that I could get my hands on real estate related. And so part of also, uh, you know, one of, one of my absolute beliefs based on experience is that the streets of New York are paved with gold. They are absolutely paved with gold. And I was walking down Broadway and I remember seeing this man with a couple of other guys and they kept looking at buildings and pointing up at buildings and what have you. And I realized that that guy was the decision maker, okay? And in him being the decision maker, uh, I went up to him and I remember I, I said to him, I said, uh, are you looking at buildings? And he kind of was distraught for a second and, and, and he said, yes, but, but who are you? And I go, well, I'm a, I'm a real estate broker. And he goes, okay, I would never buy a building off somebody that I just met on the street, okay? <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I said, well, do you own anything? Okay. And he goes, yeah. You know, uh, I, I just bought uh, two buildings on Mercer Street, 113, 115 Mercer Street. And I go, oh, so you bought that on the flip from Charlie Yasky, okay? And I had sold those buildings a year and a half ago. I sold them for 10 million and he bought them for 16 million. So uh, if he had known the guy that came up to him on the street, mm. he could have bought them for 10 million. Yeah. So when I said that to him, I got his attention. Yeah. Uh, turned out to be a very prominent Pakistani Muslim investor by the name of Siraj Dadaboy, okay? And uh, absolute beautiful soul, okay? Um, he's based in London right now. Um, he, he, had, he, he originally was from London. And, um, and Siraj, uh, I ended up selling him close to $70 million worth of real estate. Oh, wow. Okay. And this was a guy that I picked up off Office. the street of New York. So talking about finding your customers, yeah. I think that luck has a way of finding you, right? Luck has a way of finding you. I'll, I'll, I'll give you another, uh, uh, luck is, I believe, uh, uh, searches for people that put in the effort and put in the hard work. They're, they just become lucky. And I believe that there, there are formulas and there are reasons for why things happen. Things, if you understand the formula of things, your life becomes easier. Mm. And there's certain formulas and certain things that you have to do in order to attract that energy and that luck. Essentially what we call al-baraka. Mm. Right, which is al jund al khafi, the invisible soldier of baraka. Right, which is something very prominent in our faith, and 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 something, and one of the tools that has been given to us in our toolbox. And so I'm I'm such a believer of this. You know, I'll I'll share with you a funny story. Um, about two years ago, just on this line, uh, about two years ago, I was I had gotten invited to. Uh, the Future Investment Initiative, which is hosted by uh, uh, by Yasser Al Romayan, and obviously the patronage, the, the patron of the event is His, his, his Royal Highness the Crown Prince uh, uh, Mohammed bin bin Salman, MBS as he's known, right? Mm. And I was at the event, and one night I got invited to the dinner at the ex home of the chair at the ex chairman of Aramco's home, Khalid Al Falah. 
okay? And I got invited to this dinner with Khalid al-Falah with a lot of other businessmen. And there was this lady from Texas, okay, that is an investor, her family has invested some money with us. And uh, uh, she kept calling me, okay, to go and have dinner at somebody else's house. And I was in the car and I was debating it, you know, do I go to Khalid al-Falah's house? This lady just keeps, uh, uh, beautiful, beautiful sister. Uh, her name is Zulekha. And she's like, Sharif, you've got to go to this guy's house. You've got to go to this guy's house. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go to this guy's house. There's something interesting about this phone call that I'm getting from Texas while I'm in Riyadh telling me to go to this guy's house on this night, right? Mm. And I end up going to uh, Ali al-Jarasi's house, okay? And uh, um, for, 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 for those of you, or, you know, that, that have experienced Saudi Arabian hospitality, it's beautiful, okay? It's a very special and I think that there's so much that we as a community here in the United States should apply from their familial relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, different homes have diwanayas and they open up their home in their community. Everybody has a different night depending on your status in society where you just open up your house. It's open for the members of the community to come in, sit down. There's dates, there's mm-hmm. coffee, there's tea. There's a sohba, an immediate sohba whether it's about business or problem solving. Sometimes, depending on the night, they'll serve dinner or there'll just be coffee and tea and you're sitting in a duane. It's a beautiful thing. And I wish that that would be one thing that we would take from their culture, right? Those those things are semi-public. It's a semi-public place and there are private conversations at the head, right? And then sometimes he addresses everyone. 100%. But there's little side conversations. 100%, okay? You know, they're exporting a lot of bad things from us right now. Unfortunately, they're taking some of the the worst things that they're really, you know, I don't know what is their attraction to the things that they're exporting, but I really think we should take that from them yeah. and bring it onto our Muslim community here. But even, let's take even a, a, a notch further and open it up to the whole community that you live in. Your yeah. house is open during this night and let it be a night known that you as a Muslim yeah. are hosting that your home is open every Wednesday night or every Friday night. You're having tea and coffee and you're asking the neighborhood to come in. It's, it's actually, it just sparked an idea as I was having this conversation with you. But I ended up walking into now a duaneya that I've never seen before. Huh. It was the size of a football field, wow. okay? And I walk into this mansion with a duaneya the size of the football field and there's four guys playing balot in the middle of the room and it's empty okay and i'm sitting there and i can't believe that i took this invitation right <laughs> i'm sitting in this duanea the size of a football field finally a soldier walks in okay um, obviously he's dressed in the traditional thawb and what have you by the way every time i go there i wear a thawb like them and uh, uh, i i kind of figured that out quickly um and i'm sitting down next to this soldier okay uh, and I'm trying to be interested in talking about birds. My cell phone stops working. I'm like, what kind of a decision did I just make? I ended up in this duane. I, I, I don't know what to do here. I don't even know how to leave. I don't know who the host is. What am I doing here? Okay. I just gave up at dinner with the, with the, with the you know, at the time he was the chairman of Aramco, the largest oil company in the world. And I'm sitting in this, you know, uh, uh, I'm sitting in this man's house. Finally, people start trickling in. Okay. 
And, you know, you make the best of the current circumstances that you're in. Uh, but I was kind of trapped. I couldn't leave because mm-hmm. it's the rudest thing to do is just to get up and leave somebody's house. Um, fast forward, um, an American guy walks in who's another real estate guy by the name of Ron Dickerman, okay? A very, very prominent New York City investor, uh, Jewish New York City investor. I'm like, Ron, what are you doing in Riyadh? How did you end up here? Okay. And he's like, Sharif, what is that thumb? Okay. <laughs> and so I end up sitting down now with Ron Dickerman and talking shop for, you know, the next couple of hours. I kind of forget whose house I'm at. I'm just more curious now. I found a colleague and now we're talking about real estate and, you know, strategies and buildings and, 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 uh, um, uh, and just, you know, market talking about one of my passions in life. And, um, the end of the night, there was an incredible dinner. Okay, I met the host, beautiful man. Uh, you know, and I met some good people. Um, but then at the end of the night, I I look at Ron and and I see that he's got this car waiting for him outside. And I say to him, "Listen, can I catch a ride with you? Because my phone isn't working. I can't get an Uber. Can I just get in the car with you?" And he goes, "Sure." He goes, "But I'm getting dropped off first. I said, "No problem." And so he gets dropped off at his hotel. Okay, and the minute that he gets dropped off his hotel. I run to the front seat and I sit down next to the driver and I tell him, all right, I start speaking to him in Arabic and I say to him, all right, what's the story? Who's giving this guy money right now? What family are you working for? Okay. Oh my so he turns around and he says, listen, we, I, 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 I work for uh, Sheikh Suleiman. Okay. Suleiman is Suleiman, which is the largest infrastructure builder in all the kingdom. Okay. Builds all the roads, all the bridges, etc. The number one. Uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, infrastructure builder in the whole kingdom. I'm looking at the driver and I'm like, listen, you got to introduce me to your boss. I'm here for a couple more days. Get me a meeting, you know, uh, what have you. I give him my business card. I give him a whole bunch of books. And uh, he drops me off at my, my hotel. I hear nothing of it. Okay. I never hear anything again. Fast forward. Two months later, I'm in New York, in my office here where I am, working late on a Saturday night, okay? I have a little bit of a work problem, a little bit of a workaholic, (laughs) okay? I'm working late on a Saturday night, and I call my wife and I say, honey, I'm I'm coming home for dinner. She goes, Sharif, we we already had dinner. We went (laughs) so-and-so, you're stuck. I go, come on. I go, you know what? I'm I'm gonna find somebody to have dinner with in the city. I'm not coming home tonight. I I mean, I'll be home later, but... uh, so I call up one of my good friends and I, and I say to him, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm right here. And I'm like, great, let's, let's hook up. And we end up going to this restaurant and we end up going to this, uh, um, this French restaurant and the two of us sit down. A table of four comes and sits down next to us, okay, that are Arabs. And they all start speaking Arabic. Now, typically... You know, I, I, I'm, now I'm just curious. I'm eavesdropping on their conversation, right? I kind of figure out right away that two of them are Saudi, two of them are Kuwaiti, and they all went to school together at Boston, okay? They're a little bit younger than me. And nothing interesting, so I'm just like, I'm not even going to say hello. There's really nothing here for me. Then one of the young ladies says the word Wafra, and Wafra is one of the largest asset allocators out of Kuwait, okay? They, they invest all the pension fund money um, and social security money for the whole government of Kuwait 
uh, on a global basis. And the Kuwaitis, just for everybody, are probably one of the, they were the first people that really discovered oil. So they're considered the most sophisticated investors in the Middle East. They traditionally have been always a first market mover, mm -hmm. and they're one of the most sophisticated investors. So she says the word wafra, and I immediately, like, instinctually, I just now start talking to them in Arabic. <laughs> they, they get shocked at this point because they can't believe that I've been eavesdropping to their conversation for the last hour. I start speaking to them now fully in Arabic, and I end up uh, 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 introducing myself and, and what I do. And then the gentleman sitting right across from me looks at me and goes, are you Sharif Al-Gamal? And I go, yes, I am. And he goes, you were with my driver like, two oh months ago, gosh. okay? You were with my driver two months ago. He gave me my, your card. I'm sorry we didn't call you, uh, blah, 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 blah. The subsequent month, I was meeting with the father of the organization, okay? And they took me um, to Medina, okay? And uh, they showed me, inshallah, I have an ambition. One of my dreams and one of my goals is to end my career and my life in the city of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allahumma ameen ya rabbil alameen. And uh, uh, this family owns one of the most important pieces of real estate, uh, literally outside of the, the uh, uh, right outside of the hotels. And, um, and I've had several meetings with the father, okay, about potentially joint venturing with him and Soho Properties building the building for them, bringing mm -hmm. our expertise, knowledge, know-how to help them build it. But the, the, the story, again, you were talking about finding, you know, how yeah. this all started is I gave you just two examples of yeah. irrespective of where I am on the food chain of real estate, right? It's luck finds you, yeah. right? If you are putting in the hours, if you're putting in the effort, if you're making it happen and you're doing it diligently with integrity, with sincerity, right? Luck ends up finding you. Mm. It's like the ulama say that when the fisherman puts the net in the water, that doesn't create fish. Allah creates and provides that risk. But if you don't put your net in, you're not catching them regardless. Yeah. yeah. So you have to have your net in and then inshallah, the barakah will reach you. Subhanallah. Now, before we go on, I have a question. At what level is real estate actually more of a negative, you know, a loss that brings you no benefit uh, than a positive? So, for example, I talked one time to a real estate agent. He said, if you're talking about one or two or three apartments or even homes, that's actually a negative. You're expending a lot of effort. You spent a lot of money to buy them and you're going to get very little back. So what I'm asking you is what, what point is real estate sort of a negative? At what point does it become a positive? He said to me, I don't know if you're going to agree with this philosophy. He said, real estate has to be big or it's nothing. What do you think about that? I, I completely disagree with that. First and foremost, that was not a sophisticated person. <laughs> Respectfully, <laughs> with the utmost of respect. This yeah. was not a sophisticated person. I think that when you think about it, anything and anything and everything that you do happens on real estate. Okay? Yeah. We don't live in caves anymore. There's yeah. real estate and you either own it or you're renting it. And so the, the first thing that I would tell you is buy one. And when you buy one, figure out how to buy two. And if you could buy three, God bless you, keep going. But if you even just have one, you've established ownership, okay? You've cemented your existence. You've established something that will only appreciate during, during time. Obviously, 
you know, locate. It's it's all about you know investing in real estate is very very simple. It's about location, location, location. It's about timing, okay, and it's about executing a business plan. You have to know what is your business plan, even if it's one asset. What are you executing? How long is it going to take you? How much money do you need? And you have to forecast these things and budget for them and be diligent about whatever is the project. But there's no such thing as having one, you know, if you if you don't have anything, then shame on you, you know. So, okay, apartments, condos, homes, buildings. All of the above. All of the above. It's, it's just a function of, uh, uh, you know, I wish our community was more diligent in uh, in the acquisition of real estate. Um, and if you don't have the capacity to do one, figure out how to go find two or three of your friends to go buy that one. Huh. And, and let's figure out how to pool our money. You know, we need economic strength. We need economic power. And that only comes through working together or figuring out how to pool your resources and what have you. Um, and, and, and that's really been, uh, one of, one of the criteria of really establishing wealth for yourself. Question. Another question. Uh, a lot of people are hesitant about investors and you, all of your deals now at this level, there are like what, five, seven, eight, nine investors alongside with you, right? Uh, they're going to have a smaller portion. You'll have, uh, the control of the deal, but isn't investors a bit, aren't, isn't it a huge risk? So how did you navigate that risk? What was the first time you had one, right? So maybe we should actually jump from when you became manager to owner. And then when you went to owner, did you have investors with you? And then how did that work out? How did you manage that headache? Again, uh, uh, my investor pool, I, it's, it's much more than five or six. I have, you know, mm. 30 and 50 and, and I, we, we have large, we have multiple, multiple investors that come into our deals. We're doing, you know, r- really through, uh, through the blessings of God, we're, we're doing substantial transactions today. So that's today. Um, Go back to, to when I started. Yeah. Uh, when I started, I started by again, realizing, um, my start of, of the, uh, of getting into the ownership side of the business, you know, came at a at a very specific point. Remember that guy that I told you, Siraj Dada boy, that I that mm-hmm. I met on the street. So as I sold him multiple buildings, I started asking him how else I could help him grow his business. Again, customer service, trying to see leveraging that same point when I when with Michael Waldman. When I leased up his apartments, I said, what was the next thing that I could do with him? So now I've been selling these buildings to, uh, to Siraj. I went to him and I said, how can I help you? And, and that's always a question that you want to not just help yourself, but how can I help you grow? Um, and so he said to me, he said, we always look for investors. And I said to him, well, I can help you find investors. Again, fake it till you make it. I never, yeah. uh, um, and, and, I, and he ended up giving me um, uh, access now to the to, to to you know how the sausage is made mm. right how is a deal put together and he gave me his book on the deal and in that book I saw that you know wow this guy doesn't really put he, he just raises money from other people and buys the building I go wow I didn't even know that uh. okay so then slowly I started understanding more about his business and at that, and, and there was a, a very pivotal moment 
there was a building that we were pitching for. Now, at this point in my brokerage career, I started right by getting open listings where I didn't have the exclusive, you know, uh, uh, Donald Trump Jr. meeting him on the corner and having him sign uh, a non-circumvent on the corner of 27th and Madison. Now I'd become smarter and I understood more about the business. So I wanted to get control of a listing. So I was pitching for my first $400 million listing. Which means you'd be the selling broker. I would be the sell- I'd be the exclusive selling broker. And okay? if you can find the buyer yourself, then you take both commissions. Then you take both commissions. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, I ended up uh, pitching for a building on William Street. And it was a $400 million pitch. And I remember that we worked tirelessly for weeks putting together the presentation material and 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 uh, and you know figuring for the buyers. out no no to get the assignment oh we to want, get the listing we oh. wanted to get the listing and the assignment so yeah. the 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 sellers were interviewing multiple brokers and we made it into okay. the interview process and I remember the 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 seller Jeff Ravitch uh, ended up looking at me after interviewing us for several weeks and and says to me uh, you know says to me Sharif I'm sorry but we're not going to hire you. Even though I know that you're the best guy for the job, I know we're not going to hire you, but we we, we got to go with with Darcy Stakem, okay? And, and Darcy is considered the queen of skyscrapers. She's mm. she is that's a person or a company? It's a it's a, it's a woman. Oh, okay, I thought it's a company. <clears throat> company. Now, it's like sounds like two last names. No, no, right? no. no her, <laughs> she's uh, uh, she's one of the most prolific sellers of skyscrapers. She's called the queen of skyscrapers in New York. Okay, she is maybe the number one broker. In Manhattan, she probably makes for herself in excess of fifteen to twenty million dollars a year in commissions. Selling, selling, just selling skyscrapers. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ravitch said to me, "You know, listen, we got to give it to Darcy." And I remember I walked back into the office and I and I said to the team, I came back to the office. I said, "Guys, I'm not a broker anymore. I'm done. Uh, I want to start buying these buildings. I'm done. I lost that assignment." And it was one of the best things that happened. And I ended up uh, buying my first building at 431 Broom Street. Um, I bought it for, uh, I think, $4 million. And I ended up selling it for like $6 million. And I just, that, that was really my first acquisition. Then how did you make that acquisition? Did you come up with a team like of investors? I, I did that one pretty much myself. Okay. okay? I did that my that first acquisition I did myself. And it was and a flip right away? It was a flip right away. Okay. I ended up tying it up and making some cash. I understand, you know, listen, yeah. you understand the business. Um, and then what I ended up segueing into is I had been sitting down with the head of Louis Dreyfus, a, a gentleman by the name of Jess, Jeffrey Sussman. And I remember I was sitting in his office and he rolled up these maps, okay, of upper Manhattan. And he said to me, he said, Sharif, um, Columbia University is about to start expanding into a Manhattanville campus. Mm. And they're going to start buying all these buildings here to start expanding the Columbia campus. We want to start buying all the buildings around Columbia, and we want you to help us. Okay? So I walked in out of that meeting. Obviously, it was a preset meeting. I had already made up my mind what I wanted to do for for the evolution of my business Which and my qu- brand. Quitting brokerage. Yeah, yeah, I didn't want to start. I didn't yeah. want to broker anymore. But you went to this meeting as a broker. I went, yes, like I a went residual to meeting on yes, your schedule. Yes, it was okay. a re- exactly. And so I ended up um, uh, walking in, and I said, "Holy cow!" 
I literally just got like the biggest, one of the biggest leads of my careers. I mean, now it's that, amazing. again, you're talking about, you know, we were talking about this market, how it's a very small market mm -hmm. that you have to gain the trust of the market to find the opportunities, right? But here you and, are, you're about to basically steal his strategy. Yes, <laughs> yes. And, I mean, he gave it away. I yeah. mean, I didn't really steal anything. He was just sharing information and yeah. it wasn't, uh, 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 you know, it was essentially what I started doing. And, yeah. and so I started buying buildings, multifamily buildings up in Washington Heights and Harlem. And that was when I started bringing in investors into uh, our deals. Um, uh, so I now I took uh, uh, the merger of all the different strategies that I had learned, how to rent apartments, how to manage apartments, right? So the two things that I learned in the beginning of my career, I was able to merge both of them, giving me the confidence now of executing, uh, uh, you know, an ownership strategy for those multifamily buildings, and um, and that's essentially how I got started on the investor side. Uh, you know, fast forward, uh, you know, we've been involved in close to thirty transactions in New York City. Uh, and uh, uh, we're, we're an asset agnostic investor developer. Which means? That we are, uh, uh, that there's no asset class that we focus on as an investor. We are, mm -hmm. we're more an investor developer looking to figure out how to execute different strategies for different types of returns. Does so that you don't sense? care if it's uh, homes, if it's business locations, if it's offices, if it's... So the asset classes that we have, so homes or no, we don't, we will not chase a single family home. That's not in our strategy. Well, I'm, by homes, I mean like apartments, condos. Yeah, well, so there's multifamily, right. okay? Multifamily, which are apartment buildings. There's office buildings. There's retail buildings. There's land. There's industrial buildings. Hmm. Those are our assets, okay? And there's obviously land banking and, la and vacant land, but that doesn't exist here in Manhattan. Right. So uh, we started out by doing multifamily. We transitioned into office, buying office buildings. This was a building that we, we owned at one time. Yeah. Uh, oh, you got rid of this? I sold this. Uh, and now you're and a tenant. Now I'm a tenant. Well, well, well. <laughs> um, it's so funny. You know, this building, for example. This is your favorite. This is your baby. This is one of my babies, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example and why that person who said don't buy one, okay, doesn't yeah. really, wasn't sophisticated enough to, 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 you know, that's somebody who just scratched the surface and didn't go into the next level of the game. Uh, you know, this particular building, I sold it, uh, uh, I, I had acquired it um, uh, for $45 million dollars. And I sold it in two and a half years for $65 million, mm. okay? The current owner called me up about a month ago, and he's a friend of mine. And he said, Sharif, listen, I know, uh, you know, I, I don't know, but I just want to let you know that we just signed Equinox downstairs as the retail tenant, and I'm going to sell the building right now for $175 million. And so... Uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so this is uh, a, a very, very special business. Yeah. I mean, those are numbers that that's an abnormal jump, though. It's not. What happens? It's not. It's not abnormal. When you assess New York with respect to other global gateway cities, so when I'm looking at London, if I'm looking at Paris, if I'm looking at Tokyo, if I'm looking at Hong Kong, if I'm looking at Mumbai, if I'm looking at other 
global gateway cities. And if I compare the pricing of New York as an asset class, and remember the parable when I said that the trades that happened in in this little island of Manhattan yeah. were equivalent to the whole country of Canada, yeah. right? So... Uh, no, but forty-five to sixty-five, fine. Sixty-five to one seventy-five, like what well, happened? No, there, what there was a couple. Build? There was a couple of jumps in between. Oh, okay, like so a, from sixty-five like a decade past. Uh, yeah, about a decade. No, well, not even a decade. Seven years. Well, did he do a lot of improvements? In the no. The, the, listen, it's the it's the the value of the submarket went up. Yeah. The value of the submarket went up. This submarket. Right. What do you mean by that? So there are different sub-markets within the greater market of Manhattan. So this is, uh, uh, this is uh, um, uh, c- considered the Midtown South office sub-market. I got you. And to give you an example, just a statistic, uh, if you were, uh, you know, th- there's a, a macro statistic that you would uh, look at in, 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 uh, in measuring a market called a vacancy rate. What is the vacancy rate in a submarket? How what is the percentage of vacancy in a submarket? So, for example, residential in Manhattan. If you had to guess, what's the vacancy rate of residential in Manhattan? Oh, I couldn't even tell you anything. It's got to be one of the lowest in the world. In the world. Yeah. For, for residential. Residential. It's low single digits. Allah of the Hadik. He knows everything, by the way. He does. He, he really does. MashaAllah, Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. My, you know, my, my kids at home, uh, if they need an odd word or something, they always ask me, could you text Alex? <laughs> so, so the vacancy rate, the vacancy rate in, uh, in Manhattan is, it hovers between 1% to 2% mm-hmm. on the residential side. Yeah. This office market of Midtown South has become the most desired office market, okay, in Manhattan, um, <clears throat> due to the characteristics of the buildings and what have you. Uh, and um, so the vacancy rate here for an office, okay, is about four to five percent. When you look traditionally at other markets or other submarkets, it's somewhere between twelve to eighteen percent, right? So when you have that demand you're able to charge that, and then the investment becomes more desirable. And what really separates Manhattan from other parts of the world is that real estate traditionally is an illiquid investment. And so what does that mean? That you're not able to, uh, you're not able to um, uh, to liquidate and yeah. get the liquidity quickly. Yeah. quickly. Right, like yeah. if you if you own a stock or if you own a bond or if you own something in a market, you're able to redeem it and call up and say, dispose of it. I want a redemption right now. I want yeah. my money in 24 hours. Yeah. You're able to do that in other markets, but in real estate, traditionally, is a very illiquid market. You have to wait many months, even years, in certain localities yeah. in order to guard to to get your liquidity. But what is unique about New York? is that real estate is a liquid market. Uh, Within 30 to 60 days, you could access liquidity, uh, which is unusual. Which means sell it off, basically. Yes, because there's a buyer ready, willing, and able to transact with you because they want to be a part of this market. Yeah, see, wait, see out in uh, uh, where we live in the s- suburbs, I mean, to get rid of a property and sell it, that's three, four months. If, if you're, you're lucky. lucky. If you're yeah, lucky. if you're lucky. Like a home or something like that. This thing is a headache. Sometimes it's two years. Oh, actually, right now the housing market—it's 
if you're not under contract in three weeks, you probably need to take it off and do something uh, with your home because yeah. it's not going to sell. It's very, it's very, it's moving, it's moving much more quickly now. Listeners to this episode are probably like, "What the heck are they talking?" There's not a verse of Quran <laughs> been cited, right? Well, actually, but I'm just interested but, in this world that you're in. But not right? only that, everything that the Sharif is saying is returns to exactly what we're taught in our Deen, right? Yeah. So, like for instance, um, when you were saying about the stuff where you present yourself, you put yourself in the position, and you know the barakah reaches you. Um, Similarly, you had you mentioned so far two incidents which are a negative, right? You got fired from one job, you lost the opportunity to get another job, but in both, and then you still took the meeting because you did it out of you know you made this meeting, you're going to keep your promise and you're going to show up. In both of those instances, it was good for you, right? And this is a a core principle in understanding Allah's way of dealing with us, which is you might think it's bad for you, but it's actually good. Yeah. Subhanallah. So we're do, we're doing it. People should. Just, you have yeah. to read between the lines, inshallah. Investors, it's always a shady thing, right? And and people who like control over things are very nervous around the idea of sharing or doing something together, right? Because especially if you have a relationship with people, you don't want it. So what is your rule of thumb on investors? Like, is it, for example, never invest with a friend? Do you have rules of thumb? Never invest with family? Do you have rules of thumb like that? No, no. I uh, I think it's maybe maybe I, I wouldn't probably want to take money from my father-in-law or my mother-in-law, but <laughs> um, but but I I, I don't I, I don't think. Listen, I think it's it's about finding. I'm I'm very blessed. I have some incredible investors that co-invest with us, and they uh, they give me incredible trust and latitude, and and. Uh, they're sophisticated investors. They're not, you know, these are these are very well-established individuals who, uh, you know, who understand the risks that are associated, and and they're, and we will all collectively, uh, you know, uh, uh, achieve the rewards. Uh, you know, the, the the projects that we're executing are not. Um, we're the only Muslim developer today in New York City. Wow. And, and last year, you know, we, we, we just finished 2019, we put up two skyscrapers in the skyline of New York City. Wow. We topped off a 700-foot tower in Tribeca, and we, uh, we topped off a, a 34-story building in Times Square. Two incredible sub-markets that we, uh, you know, that each one of them has, uh, uh, has an incredible story behind it, and... and uh, you know, even though I'm a college dropout, I know that I have several PhDs in real estate at this point. <laughs> um, and and the, the 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 most important thing really is about finding. Uh, you know, people people are looking for uh, are looking for opportunities that we have, and they just don't know how to find them. Yeah. Now we're talking to you here at a time where, alhamdulillah, things are going good for your company. Your office remake, like you redid this whole office. It looks gorgeous. But uh, when I came to know you, you were at a time of complete upheaval and layoffs in your company. You had all these spots here were just empty desks, right? And you were basically had to expend all your money on something that you, uh, you know, never did before, which is PR, which was a lot of it was damage control. So you were basically back against the wall, and could have been buck could have buckled and completely 
uh, folded this whole uh, operation on legal fees or PR fees or no one wants to touch you, right? And no one would want to come near you to do a deal with you. So what I'm talking about, if the listeners don't know, especially those Australia or England, is the uh, what everyone's definitely heard of in the world. Some people say it's one of the most famous mosques that never was built. It is <laughs> <laughs> the Ground Zero Mosque, so-called. And in this case, we started off with that, how Trump got on you and he tried to you know, get a piece of the attention, which he always gets, a, you know, people like that always want a piece of the attention by jumping all over you, trying to buy it from you. But you, you end up in a period of your life that you wanted to build a masjid. You found, you know, a sort of a hole in the, uh, or an inefficiency of a masjid or community center that was run really well and you wanted to do it yourself. Okay, accidentally it was three blocks from the World Trade Center. Uh, tell me about the day that you discovered that the media exploded on this subject. Like there must have been, not rumblings, but there might have been rumblings, but there must have been a day where this thing changed your life completely. So I absolutely remember that day. And uh, I, I remember, uh, you know, wholeheartedly, uh, it was, you know, there was, there was a point right after it, it started into like a, a a trickle effect like literally like building uh a snowball yeah. okay it started with two little ads uh two little editorial pieces in the new york post and in the daily news that were essentially our uh our acceptance by the community board the community board had voted unanimously in acceptance of the project but the pivotal moment that was really when it when everything erupted at a whole different scale was when we took one of the buildings into landmarks okay one of the things that we had to do was get one of the buildings out of landmarks what does that mean okay so there's a landmark there's a there's a landmarks preservation commission in manhattan that has uh, given historic designation under specific buildings and uh, neighborhoods and mark and submarkets again within Manhattan that are completely historic and landmarked. Oh, well, that type of landmark. Okay. And so you have to go to the Landmarks Commission in order to make any alteration or changes to those buildings. So one of the buildings that we had acquired had a, uh, um, a calendar hearing in front of Landmarks to potentially designate it as a landmark and what we had done was that we went in to challenge landmarks uh, reading of the designation of that building and we wanted it removed from the oversight of the landmark commission and so that was literally the the that was one of the peaks within uh, what ended up happening and I remember I went to the landmarks preservation commission and uh, uh, but but there there were several moments where I realized that there, that this project is a must. Okay, I realized that this project is a must, and it's something that we have to do uh, because people don't understand who we are. People don't understand our practice. They don't they don't know our prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. They they don't know you know the mercy that came to our community, but for all of mankind. The Prophet ﷺ came as a mercy to all of mankind. And we, as Muslims, have a responsibility, 
okay, to share the knowledge of our prophet and his message with humanity. We individually have that responsibility, each and every one of us that was blessed to be uh, uh, endowed or reborn or converting into this practice and into this way of life has a has a fiduciary responsibility to go out and let people know what this is okay i don't care who you are i don't care if you're a student or if you're an employee uh, or if you're a business owner uh, if you're a parking attendant and this is your practice we have an obligation to let people know who we are and so uh what had happened was uh, one day, uh, I remember we were, we were going through uh, the large community board hearing, okay? And um, I had invited my wife and my daughters at the time were still very young, okay? Two and three years old. And I said, please bring the girls down. I want them to see what their poppy has been working on, you know, late. I was very proud. I was going and presenting to my first community board. Sure. And I walk into this community board and there was about 10 of us, okay, that I invited about 10 people. And I got there a few minutes late and my wife is coming out and she's bawling, she's just crying. And I go, what happened? And she goes, Sharif, I, I can't stay here. And I, and I said, what happened? And she said, there's a whole bunch of protesters inside and they thought that I was coming to protest your project. And so they gave me, they wanted me to take these signs and they were starting to coach me on how to protest, okay? And what I need to say, uh, uh, ended up uh, the Landmarks Commission voted unanimously that the building shouldn't be landmarked. And, so, so you won the case? Oh, I won the case. And I realized that I have, we have to build this project. There's no turning back from building this project. And um, uh, end up walking out of there. And for the first time, there must have been 100 cameras in front of me with microphones. Like, uh, never seen anything like that before in my life. At this and point, did you know who orchestrated this protest? No. No. I mean, you had was, no clue. You were totally bigger. shocked. It was much more than, I mean, this was snowballing, right? Yeah. The mm -hmm. next day, my phones were ringing off the hook in my office, okay? And I had in excess of 800 interview requests, okay? I had 800 interview requests. And I remember Seth, okay, who you know, yeah. um, was, was in the office. He's like, Sharif, you can go on any TV show that you want tonight. He goes, <laughs> where do you want to go? And I said, why don't you call Jon Stewart? He was hosting Comedy Central. See if he'll take me. And I ended up, uh, uh, Seth ended up calling Comedy Central. And they said, yeah, we would love to have Sharif. Just, mm -hmm. he, could, he could come on tonight. Uh, we'll give him you know, 20 to 30 minutes. He'll be the prime slot. Please have him come down. And when, he, when, when Seth hung up the phone on that, I realized I had a problem. It wasn't like I was basking in the moment or anything. Yeah. I just realized I had a major problem and I didn't know what I was gonna do. Um, but subsequent to that, I took my first interview, okay? That I'd never done a TV interview before and um, and I've kind of personally had a moratorium. You're the first time that I've spoken to in years and it's been on purpose and I'm so honored to be here on your <laughs> podcast. I'm a huge fan. I, I listen to it regularly. I can't wait for the new ones. And mashallah, 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 may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increase you and, and all the people that are 
that are are bringing this incredible programming okay to the community at large at a global level you know one of the things that that i absolutely adore about you is that you are a seeker of the best you don't settle or compromise from all aspects from whether it's branding to communication to the thoughtfulness or to the in-depth study of the curriculum that you provide it's just world class you are a gem for the community and uh, uh, we are so blessed to have you here Correct. where we need more scholars. MashaAllah, MashaAllah, MashaAllah. And, and uh, uh, it's, 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 it's really incredible. Uh, and so I agreed to do one interview on CNN, okay, just on my own. I figured I'd test it. I don't know why I picked this lady. But this lady ended up coming into my office with her camera crew, and I had never done an interview before. I I I, I, I didn't know, you know, I, I didn't wasn't sure what my messaging was, and I didn't know, you know, I just kind of did it right. I just yeah. kind of said, yeah, sure, I'll take, I'll let's try one of them. And so this lady ends up coming into my office, and. Uh, Really, you know, I'm I'm very blessed. I'm I'm I, I'm 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 a strategic thinker in just about everything that I do, and I'm I'm very methodical and very deliberate and and very intentional. That's just how God created me. And so this lady came in. This this pretty prominent newscaster came in to interview me, and she started by trying to corner me into getting into a debate about Israel and Hamas and, <laughs> and and she just wouldn't let it go. It's pretty cheap though for CNN. Usually that's New York Post or something. Uh, yeah. no, no. Depends on who you get. Yeah. And, and, and literally this, this lady just was coming in and trying to go and I realized, okay, um, that number one, I, I fended her off. Like I, I played... Uh, uh, I played mental jujitsu with her, uh-huh. right? Because I wasn't going to go into her traps, okay? And I kept staying focused on what I wanted to communicate with her. But then after that interview and after what happened the night before about all these calls, I realized that I had a problem. I realized that literally I had a problem. It's a new game. It was it was something I'd never even yeah, thought about P- in a million years. PR is a new, yeah. it's a new battlefield. Did you ever go to Comedy Central or no? You can't no. no, no, no. I, I didn't go. I didn't go to Comedy Central. I think we, we did that one CNN interview. Okay. And then what I did is I reached out. I reached out to, uh, uh, to a friend of mine uh, who uh, uh, I, I'm, I was friendly at the time with Russell Simmons. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Russell ended up, um, ended up going up to his office and he said, boy, what did you do, man? You're like everywhere. Everybody's talking about this project right now. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, so I'm here to talk to you. I, I, I need some guidance. I know you do a lot of TV. I know you do a lot of interviews. What do you recommend? He goes, he goes, he goes Sharif, you need a Jew right now. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> you need a Jew right now. I go, what do, you, what do you mean? He goes, you need a PR guy right now. Oh, my gosh. And, and so... Um, uh, I, I end up uh, uh, I end up going and and uh, uh, meeting with several very prominent um, PR people, and uh, and I met with this incredible incredible man by the name of Ken Sunshine. 
okay? Who's so probably... This is really for PR, huh? Sunshine and Tax. He's one of the biggest PR uh, agencies in the country because okay. his name makes you feel good to begin with, right? <laughs> it's, it's true, right? right? Subhanallah, Subhanallah. Just an incredible soul. Him and uh, and another gentleman by the name of Larry Cop uh, from the Task Group, who's who's today an absolute mega servant of our community. Okay, Larry Cop has kind of specialized, and he has a whole bunch of Muslims in his office. And has really been helping our Islamic organizations. But what they ended up doing is is they ended up saying to me that uh, uh, they ended up saying to me that uh, listen, you know, Ken came in and, and he wanted to see who I was, right? He he was he was curious. He was curious. He wanted to see who I was. He wanted to know that I was real, that this was something authentic, that this was something sincere that I was trying to do because he didn't want to get involved, obviously. He didn't know right. what is what is going on here. Like, who's this guy causing all this noise? <laughs> and so after sitting down with me for a couple of hours, him and uh, uh, him and one of his associates, he said, you know what, Sharif, I'm, I'm going to help you. He said, I'm going to help you, um, but you got to do it my way. He said, if you don't listen to me, okay, I'm, I'm out of here. It was almost like Sayyidina al-Khidr. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like saying Well, that's like, how you, that's how you know you have a master right. when he says you just do what I tell you. You just got to do it. what I tell you. Okay. He goes, we're going to get you on sixty minutes. Yeah. Okay. We're going to get you on sixty minutes in September. Uh, we're then going to roll you out on the Today Show. We're going to get you. You know, we'll try to get you on to Charlie Rose. We'll get you on to, you know, Fareed Zakaria. He's a broker. He's a broker. Right. Yeah, he's a 100%. broker of messaging. Yes, he's a broker of messaging. Yeah. Absolute mastery of the space. Yeah. Immediately goes to sixty minutes and he says, Sharif, if you if you don't follow this plan, yeah, nobody's going to take you. Uh -huh. But if you follow the plan, you will be able to get your message out. You'll get your platform out. People will hear directly what it is that you're trying to do, and you got to listen to me. What's and, the plan? And so. Well, I mean, the plan, first of all, was to dispel that, you know, dispel what this project is. This project, essentially, we, we were we were building uh, a sanctuary for Muslims. OK, three blocks from the World Trade Center, uh, which today has evolved into uh, uh, not just a sanctuary, but we're also building a museum. OK, so we're building the first Islamic museum in New York City. OK, and by the way, we're still in the same location, Sheikh Shadi. Yep. The foundations are done. Uh, what are you, what are you on? The, uh, aren't you on the, like, the 40th floor or something? Well, that's the condo tower next door. Oh, OK. But the, but the foundations of the, inshallah, the masjid are done. Oh, good. OK. That's great. Um, and it's... Did he tell you, don't answer this, answer that? Don't use this word, use oh, no, that? No, absolutely. I mean, there was, a, there was a training that ended up coming into place. Yeah. Uh, there was prep, but there was also training from the other side. He went in and he brokered a deal. So they weren't, they were supposed to stay on a specific message that if they wanted me, they needed to stay on that message. And they're going to listen to him because he's a broker that brings them people. Absolutely. He delivers, yeah. right? Again, it's a, it's another community, yeah. right? It's another community that we need to figure out how to get to be a greater part of. Yeah. One of the strategies that we need to execute as a Muslim community is how do we start getting more involved in PR and in media and, and, in, and in these various outlets, okay? So agreed, shook hands, started off the road. What's interesting during that time period now, there was this newscaster, okay, from Fox News by the name of Charles Leaf, okay? And Charles Leaf started uh, harassing me 
at a level that I've never experienced before in my life, okay? And literally it was, it was hard because the paparazzi was following me around the street trying to get me to talk because I had shut down. So now the, everybody else is talking, mm -hmm. but the, the servant of the project, you know, the, 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 the guy who's, who's building the project, he's not speaking. Right, mm. he's not he's not going out there and speaking. What what's the story here? Yeah, and uh, and there was a lot of confusion, and everybody was throwing in their two cents. You know, everybody from uh, everybody. Like it, it was it was it was incredible. Well, before you get into Charles Leaf, I'll tell you also why for the listeners that uh, there was all this confusion and there was all this publicity, and this might be sensitive for you, but we asked you if there's anything off limits. You didn't say yes, right? <laughs> but. You had an imam at that time who really came across as if it was his project in the newspapers. Is that uh, well, Abdur, What's his name? Faisal Abdurraouf. Imam Faisal Abdurraouf, when I read about it in the New York Times from my house in Meriden, and I remember this very well, the, these evenings, because they were like winter evenings and there was really not a lot going on. And my wife would oftentimes read from the New York Times and she said, oh, there's this project going on. It's led by this Imam Faisal Abdurouf. He's you know Egyptian Imam, and we're reading them this reading this thing, and I was actually confused when I read about what you said, and then I read this. I was like, who's in charge of this project, right? Is it his project, the Cordoba House operation? And then it was a bit fluffy. I didn't really like it to be honest with you. It was very multi-faith. We're gonna have a corner for different religions here, there, and the other, which I don't do that type of thing to begin with. So that was your other problem. You had an external problem that you were surrounded. You had an external problem with the Pamela Geller and those Islamic phobic groups. And you had an internal problem because the messaging was crisscrossed and who was leading, no one knew, right? So Daisy Khan. <laughs> right, she was talking. Her husband's talking. And then they're chasing you to talk, right? But then when actually push comes to shove... They're not attacking Faisal and Daisy. They're attacking you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, tell us about that whole situation. How you navigated being attacked on both sides. It, it wasn't easy. It was not easy at all. It was... But I have characterized it correctly, right? Yes, It was an in, internal trauma? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Listen, I think there was, there was a disconnect, unfortunately, behind what was the objective of the project. And, uh, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I think that... Uh, you know, interfaith is 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 uh, is confusion. Very simply, I think that interfaith creates confusion. I think it's important to have absolute openness and dialogue with all faith leaders and with all faith communities. Relationships are great, and relationships yeah. and 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 open policies and communication. Yeah. But there's no such thing as I don't understand what interfaith is. Sorry, I just I don't get it. I just it call it relations. Have have good relations. Uh, yes. And by I, the way, I would have good relations with a Hindu if he's down the road, and I have to live in the same town. A hundred percent. And that's part of our humanity. Yeah. God created us different. God created Hindus. God created yeah. atheists. God created all types of people. And it's not for us to uh, uh, mistreat or not or, or not treat different people. But that properly. must have been so. Bad enough, they're already they're already not Muslim. What else yeah. are you gonna do to them? Yeah, I mean, and, you, and you're, when you're living with people, you got to have relationships with mm -hmm. them, and that 100%. that's really where it should be. But question for you is that must have been really awkward. He's your elder. He, you look up to him. He views you as almost like uh, a pupil, almost in some sense. At the same time, though, you're on you're working and. He, He's working for you, right? 
So there's a very awkward relationship in that. And on top of that, you're Egyptian. He's an older Egyptian. So there's like a Ammu a relationship, an uncle sob. Is that how it's uh, how it is put? I mean, I'm asking you as if you're Daisy. <laughs> there's like an uncle relationship at the same time. So all yeah. these three things are happening. And now it's hitting the fan in the media. So tell me how awkward that must have been. It was very challenging. It was extremely <laughs> challenging. It was uh, it was definitely extremely challenging. Listen, I I have a tremendous amount of respect for Imam Faisal. I, I think who's in that, Malaysia, by the way. Yeah, uh, but I think he's in Malaysia right now, anyway. So I know that he spends his time between Malaysia and, and the United States, and okay. I think that you know, I think that at the, I, I know that at the core, that there is uh, uh, a true servitude that that he does provide. I think that there was. Uh, uh, an unfortunate set of circumstances that ended up transpiring internally and uh, it was a tremendous learning lesson for everybody involved however uh, however the project uh, uh, at the end of the day has always maintained its core identity and its core mission of servitude I mean you uh, you being a part of it in those early days can attest uh, to what we're doing, and really through the blessings of God, first and last, fadlu karam min Allah subhanahu wa taala awwal wa akhir. Till this day, we are still providing the service of salat al jumaah while we're building out our space. We rent out a hall at the Hilton Hotel, overlooking the overlooking the World Trade Center. Every Friday, go to the website. You know, there's there's information on the khutbas that we provide. We haven't stopped providing the service that we wanted to ultimately provide from the beginning. Um, but the, the, the biggest lesson out of all this is that uh, we've got a lot to learn and a lot to do uh, no. in changing essentially what is our biggest problem, okay, as a global community, which is one of public relations. Yeah. Our biggest problem, okay, we have the best product in the world, okay? But the messaging and the public relations are a disaster, oh, okay? It's beyond negative. And, and, and that is the problem that we have within our community and within... Uh, Let's go back to the juicy story of this guy, Thomas Leaf, whatever you said his oh, name Oh, Charles is. Leaf. Charles Leaf. He's after you. So Charles Leaf is after me, man, huh. okay? And he is relentless. And he is literally threatening me if I don't go on his show, okay? Threatening me, uh, saying every night he's doing a little bit of an expose on me, okay? You know, a 15-minute expose every night on his show. I don't know how they gave him the format. And uh, one day at around 6 o'clock in the morning, I, I, I had woken up and, and my car was parked on the street. And, I, and there was uh, alternate side of the street parking. And I walked out without my glasses and I was still kind of in my pajamas. I was just moving, going down the, down the street to move my car, okay? And uh, there is Charles Leaf standing in my building, okay? He kicks me in my shins, okay? And he's like, uh, he's got the camera guys all looking at me and he kicks me with, with steel-tipped boots, okay? Uh, kicking me in my shins. And he's like, come on, Sharif, punch me. Punch me, Sharif, okay? <laughs> we want to get this on film. Punch me, come on. And he's oh, kicking me and following me around. 
and I'm just smiling. I'm doing the opposite. I'm smiling. I got my head down and I'm just kind of lost now in my building. Okay. Like I ended up walking into the garbage alley of my building. I'm dressed in my pajamas and they're filming me right now walking around in my building. Okay. Uh, as I'm going around and he ends up looking at me and following me and doesn't get anything. Uh, but ends up running like a minute of this clip every night. Five years ago, this man was waiting tables in Manhattan. Today, he is spending millions in cash on New York real estate, including on the building where this mosque will go. Charles Leaf has a must-see report from our Fox affiliate WNYW in New York. Where have you raised the money, Mr. El Jamal? Where's all the money come from? Sharif El-Jamal, why won't you talk to us, sir? Why are you running? Why are you running? We have legitimate questions for you, sir. Why won't you answer any of them? While Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf has dominated headlines, this man, 37-year-old developer Sharif El-Gamal, is actually the central figure behind the Ground Zero Mosque. Yet just a few years ago, El Gamal was waiting tables in Manhattan restaurants. He was an awesome guy. He's a really real, real hustler and a real go-getter. Naturally, we wanted to meet Sharif El Gamal. We wanted to learn more about the man and his plans. But apparently, he didn't want to meet with us. We made repeated requests for a sit-down interview with him left him multiple voice messages, and he never returned any of our calls. We even went to his office and talked to some of his colleagues, but we were turned away. So we were left with no choice but to go find him. Sharif El-Jamal. Hi, I'm Charles Lee from Fox 5 News. How are you? I'd like to ask you a couple questions. El-Gamal immediately tried to get away from us, refusing to answer my questions. More on our meeting in a minute. But first, who is Sharif El-Gamal? And so finally, one day, you know, he threatened, he threatened, threatens me to a point where he's like, you know, if you don't come on tonight, we're going to do blah, 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 blah. And I was driving with my wife and my kids and I literally thought I was going to get into a car accident. And I pulled over to the side of the road and I, and I just started crying to Allah. And I said, Allah, I can't do this anymore. I can't bear the pain anymore. I can't, I can't. And uh, it was it was a very critical moment for me personally as a human being because I, I couldn't withstand the pressure anymore. And I remember going that night to sleep and I was just, I was torn up. I was just torn up going to sleep and I was like, I don't know what this guy wants to do to me, um, but I'm holding firm. I'm not going on a show. I'm not, you know, I'm not communicating with him. The next morning I wake up and I'm in the shower and I'm taking a shower and my wife is like, come on, get out, get out, get on the TV. Look at what's going on on the TV. Former Fox 5 reporter Charles Leaf was convicted today of sexually assaulting a four-year-old girl at his home in Wyckoff, New Jersey. A jury found him guilty of all charges, including child endangerment, possession of child pornography, and tampering with evidence. The abuse was first reported back in October of 2010 when the girl told her babysitter she had been touched in a sexual manner. Leaf faces up to 20 years in prison when he is sentenced on June the 6th. In other developments today, it's about it's about right. He got he got he got arrested for child pedophilia. That's unbelievable. Okay, and uh, he's wow. sitting in jail today. Wow. He's he sat in jail. He got that is uh, unreal. He, he got literally 
uh, uh, a 30-year sentence. That is okay? unreal. And that was the end of Charles Leaf. Wow. Subhanallah. 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 Do you remember? And that's it. That's, uh, that's this, is, this makes me feel very good, by the way. Because yeah. by the time you got to the kicking you with boots, I'm so angry. Right? <laughs> I was like, somebody needs to take this guy out completely. Like, I was, I was, I was burning up inside. That Alhamdulillah, that's a, good, that's a good end to that guy's story. That's insane. MashaAllah. SubhanAllah. And, and for, for like the people around you must have really believed, like, subhanAllah, this is the power of dua in, in, in action right in front of us. 100%. Um, Fox News laid off me at that point. Would you they think that was a turning point? Th- that was definitely a turning point. So they laid off. Uh, they, they, no, they refused to talk about me. They refused to talk about me at that point. This is what happens I, when somebody turns to Allah in a moment yeah. of real desperation. Now Allah uh, just Allah answers those dots. He really does. Alhamdulillah. 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 I am proof of the answering of those dots, and I, and I could recount dozens. Sure. Of instances of circumstances and situations where I dreamt big and I got to a certain level of this game of life and I just leave the rest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and stay on the course. I don't waver from the course that Masha I set. Allah. And that's always that's part of my brand and part of my identity is that once I decide that I'm going after something. I don't care how long it's going to take, but I'm going to figure out how to problem solve along the way and continuously go back to the source of all the solutions of all the problems. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, and uh, serve the shiuch, serve the masajid and figure out how to just be, a, 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 be nobody. Nobody that just wants to uh, leave a mark on this opportunity that we have all been bestowed with life who does not want to be average who wants to set a higher bar for himself for his children for the people that work around him uh and that's all due to having the 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 continuous ability to go to the ultimate source of all the solutions allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that was a turning point where things started to cool down in terms of the media? A little bit. I mean, it was still extremely I'll tell you. I'll tell you what you did have, though. You, you actually got good with the city. And, and, and the certain parts of the city, the more tolerant and diversity elements of the city. Oh, we had the whole city. You had that. We but had now, the whole city. They, they, I remember that, yeah. yeah the they knocked city. out Pamela Geller out of the scene. Right, Listen, but I'll tell you what you didn't have yet. A lot of the broader Muslim community. We didn't have the broader Muslim community. Yeah, they were so, embarrassed. I didn't even know who the broader Muslim community was. Yeah, they they felt embarrassed by the whole project. I didn't even know who the broader Muslim I, community I know was that. at In, the time. Infuriating. Yeah. Infuriating. I, no, I, I res- respectfully, yeah. I didn't even know who they were. Yeah. That's I was a simple guy. Around. I was a simple guy in New York who's yep. who's a businessman who just wanted to do something, yep. who didn't realize what was the protocol or what were the people that you, you know, which hands to go kiss, which yeah. rings to go kiss, Honestly, which, the entire community which doors to knock, to you. Yeah. which doors to knock on. I'll tell you what, what, what was happening was that you solved that problem with the, with uh, your internal issue with uh, Imam Abdul Rauf. He left. 
then the the diversity elements of the city pushed out the Geller and the Fox News elements. You then went, uh, you, you didn't have the buy-in from the Muslim community who was still embarrassed by the whole fiasco. That's how they viewed it. And I know I was talking to people all the time in Connecticut and elsewhere too, and my contacts elsewhere. Uh, you then had one more stumble that put you back another couple steps, which is that there was this crazy misunderstanding with another imam who was beloved, uh, Abdullah al-Adhami. What happened to him, by the way? He's very sick and he hardly comes out of his house. He just writes books, I believe. I, Where I, is I, he? I have no idea. Where me. is his I house? In, I think he lives in New York. That's the last place he was living. Can we yeah. find his address? I, I would no love idea. to go visit him. Well, that, so that was something I that ended that up. I love that guy. Yeah. Now, that was something that was really, uh, I guess, out of your hands. So the short of it is that you brought him on board to teach. He gets harassed by Fox News. And then he thinks that, you know, you guys didn't stop it. So it's your fault. So I left. And now his story to people shed more negative light onto your, your operation. That's when I came around that I was almost just sort of in need of a job. Right. And we happened to cross paths at the same time that you kept having blunder after blunder with, uh, with people, with Mashaikh, basically. And I just needed something. To, I just needed to get my foot in the door somehow. And that's why I accept. I would have accepted anything if they're paying with dollars. Wow, well, right? we, we we really feel special. Right now, right? <laughs> wow, <laughs> I'm telling you, like when you're trying to get into a space, right? When you're trying to get into a space, you take anything, right? You would have taken. Now, I want. I wanted to get to show that I could actually do this, this work with Muslims uh, and teaching. I wanted to do it full time. I don't want to do it any more Sundays in the masjid, which is that's what I was doing in the past. And sometimes in the summers. So I, I needed to just get anything in the tri-state area that I could hand. And there was only one option, right? So, but I'm telling you, your spot at that time was the least desirable of all spots. Someday that's going to change. When you actually have your operation, you'll be finding people knocking at the door, right? But at the time, the public perception in the Muslim circles was very negative. Like, this guy embarrassed us. Why do you need to build a building there? Like, why would we need to draw attention, right? That just the fact that 9-11 and Ground Zero was attached to a masjid. I was from the opposite side. Like, I was on the side of people who like to stick their noses into something mm -hmm. and who, when pushed, don't uh, push back. They push back. Not when they're pushed, they turn the other cheek. So I was always on that side of things, and that actually got me, some people didn't really like it in Connecticut, right? Some people who, I, when I would talk about this publicly, they're like, ah, this is an embarrassing thing. Now, you remember when we went to ISNA together? You went to ISNA hat in hand to get support. Nobody would talk to us. Remember when we went to Imam Siraj's uh, big fundraiser at the Hilton in Manhattan, right? Or whatever, Hyatt or something, right? Nobody wanted to, we were not, it was not a popular operation. No one wanted to touch it, right? But slowly these things are going to change. That was right? a moment of cowardice in the Muslim community. They were scared. They, they didn't know what was going to happen. And they basically wanted you to take Donald Trump's offer. No, no, uh, Muslims around, no Muslims around Ground Zero, please. Yeah. We want to respect your... Uh, I'm telling you, and this is also, I'm telling you it's a geo geographic thing. It's a geographic thing that people who are accustomed to, you know, regular nice relations actually don't realize that there are some conflicts that you need to be involved in. Yeah. 
They're good for you. Like I just put a post up and you saw this that we don't need conflicts, needless conflicts with other Muslims, right? You don't need to go hurting another Muslim. But that doesn't mean conflict averse. There are some conflicts that improve you. Whenever you have a conflict with your enemy, you improve, you get better. Your morale, your, t your group morale, your ummah's morale, your, your, the believer's morale, uh, it's, it, it comes together because you're having a just cause, right? This was one of those things that, yeah, it looked embarrassing on the outside, but if you actually look at who you were up against, a victory against that in this field would be huge, right? So a lot of people saw this as a type of conflict that they wanted to stay away from. I thought it was a conflict that we want to get involved in. It's one of the two things that you absolutely are not allowed to walk away from. Yeah. People <clears throat> fighting you because of your religion. Yeah. And the other one is trying to drive you from your home. Exactly. Those two things you can't walk away from. Exactly. You're not allowed to. Who was the driving force was uh, really filthy people like Geller. Filthy people. You can't lose it. You can't, you can't negotiate with these types. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, listen, I, I think that th there has been obviously uh, an awakening that happened within our community due to our project on a national you level. You think so? I don't, th I, I, I don't, I I don't th think we're stronger. I still no, 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 think the no, no, bulk no, no, not, of people... I'm not, I'm not saying that we're stronger. I'm not saying that we're stronger yet. We're not even conflict-ready. I, I we're still conflict-averse. I, I I, I and I say you. that with love no, to no, the no. ummah, with, with no, love no, no, to the no, community. No, no, I, I agree with you. I agree with you on that. However... Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that there has been an awakening and that today, okay, uh, it has helped unlock and open and bring together the national community at a level that they had never been uh, uh, unified at a level like that before, okay? Now, again, respectfully, there were many members of the community that selflessly came up and ma many heads of many large organizations, okay? For example, you know, Nahed Awad from CARE, okay? May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect, increase, and elevate him with everything that he does, okay? He has built today one of the most important civil American civil right organizations, okay, that has... Uh, 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 you know, emerge today as I believe one of the most important organizations that we have in the country. Um, ICNA, okay, ICNA was a, the, the, the Maglis Ashura of, of New York City. Uh, the, the, the amount of uh, community support, okay, putting aside. Uh, whatever is your perspective on the, the the support of the Muslim community or the lack of the support of the Muslim community, which I wholeheartedly agree was not done uh, was not done in the way that it should have been done again, but that was due to our lack of experience and our lack of understanding of the depth and the gravitas of our community on a national level. Okay, and uh, you know as as we. Uh, you know, as we go forward, there, there is going to be a lot more thoughtfulness in what we're doing and what we're building. Um, but we won. You won. That's, that, we that's... won. The result at the end of the day yeah. is that today we own the land. Yeah. Okay. We have our foundations finished for the sanctuary that we're building. We have an incredible project that is going to be a gift to humanity. 
It is not just a gift to the Muslims. It's a gift to humanity. It is going to be our, uh, uh, it's going to be a contribution of a landmark institution, okay, two blocks away from where our identity was stolen from us, okay? If you look at the, 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 the ramifications of those horrific events of that day, okay, and if you fast forward till today and look at who was affected by it, it was us mm. as a Muslim community. Mm -hmm. So we have an opportunity here to, again, open our house to the community to the global community, okay? When you look at 80 plus million tourists that come into New York City, when we know that we have close to 20, uh, 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 20 million tourists that are coming down to the World Trade Center and we have this opportunity here, okay, to open up our doors and open up our community in a, in a way of servitude, in a way of, of, of sharing uh, uh, our identity and the truth of our identity without compromising or watering anything down, okay? And, and building a pride point, uh, a jewel box for our children, uh, uh, a place where a presidential candidate could come in and, and, and get the endorsement of our community, okay? In a proper way, in one of our houses, and that's a little bit of an inside joke, guys, right? Okay, and, and having, uh, 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 you know, having that ability of us being able to offer that. Of so, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the most important thing about this project is that first and foremost, it's executed with ikhlas and sincerity for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's the first and foremost mission Inshallah. of all the servants of this project is that we want to build a place that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is pleased with. And we want to provide a platform that our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is pleased with. You know what? If you're going around pleasing people, okay, then you ain't doing something right, mm -hmm. okay? Because this isn't about going around and trying to please people and win people over. Uh, th th there's... There's a reason that there are doers and there's a reason that there are talkers, yeah. right? And uh, we just want to do, we want to build and let the, let the work speak for itself. Well, we, I kept you guys so long, it's unbelievable. It's like past midnight and we both got one hour drive ahead of us. So Jazakallah and any final words? I, uh, you know, I, I, I want to thank you for having me on, on your podcast. Thank and, you for hosting and, us. Uh, I'm, I'm so honored to be here. I, I just ask uh, the listeners to dream big and to execute on their dreams when they, when they find the right dreams and to never, ever, 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 ever give up. Uh, never give up when you've decided that you're going to do something uh, and believe that it will happen we all go through trials and if you're not going through a trial then you're doing something wrong okay uh, we all go through trials we all go through tests and I could tell you that we are so blessed to be Americans. We are so blessed to be Americans and to be in this country, okay? 
and each and every one of us has an obligation to make sure that we do our part, no matter how big or how small it is, in ensuring that we share our practice, our profit, and our identity with our community at large. And uh, please keep me in your du'a. Please keep Sheikh Shadi and Alex in your du'a. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, for the record, uh, I would love to be your first sponsor. I don't know if you have sponsors on your podcast, um, but Soho Properties would love to be a sponsor of your podcast. Oh, uh, so I don't know if you're. We do have sponsors. You do have sponsors. We okay. do have sponsors. Do you announce the sponsors or we, we the anonymous a, or no? We get a clip either of your blurb that you give us, or you want to record it yourself. Okay. And if you want to give us copy, we'll read it. Give us copy. We'll read it, okay. or you read it with your voice, Good. or whatever you have us, and Good. we'll air it in every single one. Okay. Well, yeah. I would like to. Uh, I, I I haven't heard any of the sponsors yet. Uh, maybe I'm not listening no, thoroughly we, we, enough. We have a sponsorship program, but we actually never even advertised it. Okay. Like we have the whole program in place, okay. but we just never actually advertised it. But, okay. but Very early on, we did. We were doing that thing with Elegant We had Elegant Beard. Mecca Books wants to be a sponsor, but we never just got off with talks with them. But if you bring it up, I mean, all the infrastructure for to do it and set it Great. up is there. Well, I'd like to be a sponsor. Okay, it's I'd, a deal. Uh, then I'll email you. Uh, so thank you for having me. My pleasure. And may Allah bless you and reward you and your families. And thank you for being and here this evening. And, uh, uh, can we close with a dua, Ashik? Let's do it. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah rabbil alamin. Allahumma salli wa barik ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam tasliman kathiran tayyiban mubarakan fi. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad al-Fatih lima ughlaq wal khatim lima sabaq nasir al-haqqi al-haqqi wal-hadi ila siratik al-mustaqim wa ala alihi haqa qadrihi wa miqdarihi al-azim. Allahumma habib ilayna al-iman wa zayyinhu fi qulubina wa karrih ilayna al-kufra wal-fusuqa wal-asyan. Allahumma inna nas'aluka hubbak وحب من يحبك وحب كل عمل يقربنا إلى حبك وحب نبيك صلى الله عليه وسلم اللهم اجعلنا أنوارا يهتدون بنا الناس اللهم ارزقنا خدمة سنة نبيك صلى الله عليه وسلم اللهم اجعلنا خداما لسنة رسولك صلى الله عليه وسلم ربنا لا تزق قلوبنا بعد إذ هديتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب We ask Allah Taala to guide us to the straight path and keep us steadfast upon it. We ask Allah Taala to make us servants of His Messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم and and adherents of His Sunnah. We ask Allah Taala to make us lights that can guide people to His Sunnah صلى الله عليه وسلم. We ask Allah to make us love Iman and make it sweet in our hearts and make disbelief and deviation bitter and distasteful in our hearts. Amen. Ask Allah Ta'ala for all the children of this ummah Make their future bright in Iman Amen. And keep away from them the azdiqa asu Those uh, companions of, of, of bad influence And we ask Allah Ta'ala to surround them with people of good influence And to make them love the people of knowledge And to Amen. make them love the people of piety We ask Amen. Allah Ta'ala to always tie our hearts to the masajid And always tie our Amen. hearts to the fuqara Amen. And always tie our hearts to the ulama Amen. And always tie our hearts to servitude to his ummah and to the to the Muslims and to the Sunnah of the Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam, we ask Allah Taala for all our parents that He guide them to the straight path Amen. and make the best of their days their last days Amen. and enter them Jannah without hisab and open their graves and make their graves abodes of 
forgive all of their off uh, or their their shortcomings for having raised us. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for all of our everyone involved in this ummah, everyone doing dawah, everyone serving, everyone benefiting from the services, anyone uh, contributing with their wealth, contributing with their uh, dua, contributing with their bodies, with their tongues, Amen. with their minds, that Allah Ta'ala make it all shahada for them and Amen. make them all die as martyrs and enter Jannah without hisab. And specifically, before we close, we ask Allah Ta'ala for our host tonight in his office. Sharif al-Gamal, may Allah Ta'ala strengthen him and his family and make him a servant of this deen and make him uh, an imam to the muttaqeen and make him uh, one of those like Sayyidina Uthman and Umar ibn Khattab who serve with their wealth and with their strength. And may Allah Ta'ala always purify his gut his instincts, his his mind and his heart and Allah Ta'ala continue to draw him near to the ulama and make him a give strength to the ulama and give support to the ummah and ask Allah Ta'ala for his project that it be a shining light for that that the angels look down upon and are amazed by and we ask Allah Ta'ala to make it a shining light that the ummah gets strength by and gets some confidence from and we ask Allah Ta'ala to bring it to fruition better than what he's imagined <laughs> and to remove away from it all of the problems that are in its path and all those enemies trying to stop it and we ask Allah Ta'ala to make it a guiding light for this city for the country and for the people in the entire ummah sallallahu ala sayyidina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam alhamdulillah rabbil alameen